forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I'm slowly learning how to run again in physical therapy. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and I'm into TikTok, baby. Ooh. Wait, you're learning how to run again? Yeah, I, I'm about uh, almost nine months out of my knee surgery, and um, we're, I'm finally strong enough to slowly learn how to run again, but I don't really know how to do it, so my PT is having to, like, do these little like exercises with me and tell me where to put my feet and all these different things. And it's, it's wild. Is it, does it hurt? It doesn't hurt. It's just not natural. It's like an interest, you know, I have to like really concentrate on it and I can't like, I'm not like running yet. I'm more like doing these like little bit of lopsided jogs. Oh, <laughs> lopsided jog is my favorite ska band. <laughs> <laughs> but it's exciting. I'm moving the fastest I've moved in a you know almost a year, so that's been thrilling for me. Yeah, he gives me a lot of high fives. <laughs> it's a guy. Yeah. Well, for most of my recovery, it was a woman, and then she left, and so now I'm because of you. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. I really hope not, <laughs> because she moved all the way to San Diego. <laughs> yeah, just to get away from you. Honestly, I think it might have been to get away from her mom, but I think that's, <laughs> that's fair. Well, this is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. Now I'm going to be up all night. Did she leave because of me? Probably. I will say that the, my, the aide, the, the physical therapy aide who I see all the time, she hasn't been there recently either. So you maybe, drove her away. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, at least, I, at least my two dogs can't ever leave me. Yes, that's why Beans is here. My favorite thing is when you call Beans little man. Yeah, he's a little man. When you say little he's man. He's a little man. Phantom is my little man and Beans is your little man. Yeah. He's a good boy. <laughs> he's Everyone's a good boy. dog who's listening to this just shot up. Yeah. Their ears just shot it's up. It's so funny. Like, objectively, I understand when I make my voice go that high, pe- people hate it. Yeah. Dogs cannot get enough of it. That's the thing. They love it. Okay. They go wild for it. Do Phantom and Sugar, when there's a dog barking on TV, do they react? Not on TV, no. Sometimes if someone rings the doorbell on TV, Beans will give a little woof. And I'm like, aren't you embarrassed? Don't my, you feel my stupid? My parents' <laughs> dog would start to bark when there was like squeaky toys on TV. On TV. <laughs> but my dogs don't seem to get it. Or if a dog is, there was, I got really sad because there was a dog like whining on TV and Beans like was reacting. And I was like, he's not hurt. He's not hurt. It's not real. Well, anyway, dogs are the best. And that's welcome to the show. The show is about dogs. <laughs> <laughs> that's our spinoff. But we've got an excellent version of this show for you today. Oh yeah. We're going to be talking to Robert Hartwell all about Broadway. Um, it was a delightful interview. Just a, a balm for your heart, a, a a burst of sunshine. You know what I mean? Yes. And when I think of Robert, I think a balm for my heart. Yeah. A rousing game of hypotheticals. Very rousing. Some of my best work, if I do I say so myself. So. Thank you so much. It's tough after about th- three years, yeah. four years of this. <laughs> um, and then later, we're going to be talking about the Overton window and um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but we will explain it to you later. Mm-hmm. But first, 
we have got to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means? Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Claire, Canada. Claire. Beautiful. Beautiful name. Hi, Gabby and Allison. I've been a big fan of the show since the early YouTube days. Would love your perspective slash advice. Claire, mm. she, her, 30, Canada. I love it. I Thank love you. this level of detail. That is a true fan. Thank you. I know that my body and mental health benefit greatly from exercise. Mm. I've been working out with a personal trainer two to three times a week for the past nine months. Mm. My body aches less. I feel stronger when doing daily tasks like walking to get groceries. I'm sleeping better and my anxiety has gone way down. Mm. I also love my trainer. She's fun to talk to and incredibly kind and supportive. The problem is I still hate exercise. Yeah. I get so frustrated as my workday ends and I remember I have to do it. I feel angry before, during, and often after, sometimes to the point of crying. I dread the sessions and often think about quitting. I hate feeling warm and sweaty. I don't like showering, which is necessary after working out. And even though it's only an hour, it feels like it takes up so much of my time. It's also very expensive. But I haven't worked out a single time on my own this year and feel like if I don't pay her, I'll stop completely. In the past, I've had a very unhealthy relationship with my body and exercising. It was only ever about losing weight. This year, I have tried to only focus on the health side and the positives I listed before. But it makes me even more frustrated that I notice these great changes, but I still don't care or associate exercise with something positive. In the past, it's easy to stay dedicated to exercise when you're seeing drastic body changes, but I know that's not healthy. How can I feel more positive about exercising? Will it just never happen for me and I need to accept this as a part of my life that will always be hard? Thanks in advance, Claire. Part of me is like, why do we have to do anything we don't want to do? But also the other part of me is like, I mean, you listed a lot of really good reasons. But also, I just, I, I'm very, I'm like a very short-term minded person sometimes where I'm like, I just want to do what the thing that feels good is going to be right now. And I don't care about later, um, which is not the best impulse. But I totally relate to this. I mean, I, when I first started like working out, I had a trainer. I don't have a trainer anymore. And having the trainer made me motivated to go, but I hated going after the first like session that I ever had with him, I threw up because I was like so tired, I think, or just like I, it was sometimes uh, that happens. Used to throw up a lot. I totally understand the feeling of like resenting it and having it take up so much time. Maybe there's like a, a form of exercise that you would like better, like swimming or racquetball or something that you wouldn't dread, like something more fun. Is that right? Yeah, so I'm someone who's had very similar, maybe not to the same extent as you, but a very similar uh, relationship to exercise where like other people like love it. And I've only ever done it because I know that I quote unquote should. I know, me too. (laughs) Um, It's not something I'm ever like, oh, can't wait to, to do that. And so I kind of have like two different avenues of of advice, which might resonate with you might not. And the first is what Gabby was talking about, which is there are different forms of exercise. And so maybe there is a way to work with your trainer about making the actual session 
more enjoyable for you in some way. Um, like I recently started doing um, Pilates videos mm-hmm. and the the goal, because I thought that it would be helpful for my knee and to gain back the strength in my knee. And like a lot of times I'm like, oh, I don't know if like I'm working out the level that I need to be or if it's as hard as it should be. But like I, I just for whatever reason enjoy those workouts more than when I was like doing like strength training and, right. and the elliptical on my own. And I've also noticed that I kind of go in and out of phases with exercise. So like right now I'm in a Pilates phase. One of the things I'm doing is not telling myself I have to be in a Pilates phase forever. Right. Yeah, I think yeah, that yeah. a lot of times I put pressure on myself if I find something that works better than something else. Be like, well, I did it. I solved it forever. <laughs> and then like when inevitably I get sick of Pilates yeah. or like then I'll feel like so let down and frustrated. But going in with this mindset of like, for right now, this seems to be working is helpful. Mm-hmm. So talking to your trainer about different options, different things, like what parts of the sessions do you like more than others? And then also like incorporating other maybe less strenuous forms of, of physical movement just sort of throughout your week so that it's not just like I only do this then and I hate this and it's mm-hmm. that focus. So like if you have a podcast, I, I don't know your um your physical ability level or, yeah. you know, but potentially if if you walking is something that you can do and you have a favorite podcast this podcast uh, <laughs> you know like when you know like when you're going to listen to it that you'll go on a walk and yeah. you know or like you'll break it up into three walks over the week or yeah. trying to find other ways to connect with your body that aren't like that full-blown like sweating want to die right. on the floor level of exercise so that you can have like kind of build a better just like movement connection with your body and then the other thing I would say which I also deeply relate to is how much the anticipation is killing you absolutely and like honestly that's why I work out in the morning because Mm -hmm. if I didn't work out in the morning I would spend all day long dreading dreading it so I don't know if that is a change that is possible given your schedule or your Mm -hmm. trainer's availability or your work like but for me, I found that working out in the morning and getting it off my plate right away is like really helpful. Mm-hmm. But another thing, a tactic that I'm using that I've been using lately for <laughs> this class that I hate going to so much is I try not to let the fact that I have to go to that class on Wednesday ruin my entire day. Oh, how? and so I don't say that I don't lie to myself. And I don't say to I don't try to like trick myself into thinking that I'll like the class once I'm there Ah. because my brain knows that's not true. My brain knows that I'm going to hate that class. Right. But what I do say is I'm not in that class right now. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, and I think I used to really look at life as a full day. Yeah. And I, it has been helpful to my anxiety and my mental state to, to break the day down into smaller moments. And to say, like, right now, I'm just eating lunch. I'm right. not I'm not in class. Right. <laughs> I don't need to, like, have that level of dread and anxiety about something that's not happening yet. That's a later me problem. Right. And so I wonder if if working on the anticipation around the workout might. I'm not saying all of a sudden that workout's going to be better. Right. But imagine if just for once, it's just that hour, hour and a half when you shower after. That's a bummer mm-hmm. instead of that whole day. That'll yeah. feel different. I used to um, get myself a little treat after. Yeah. Get like a juice or something. Get a little treat after. Get a little treat before. Save it for after. So I know that's ca- that's coming up. 
even like tricking myself, like parking in different places so that I'm like, don't get like a Pavlovian response to one parking spot. You know what I mean? Like to try to trick myself, like how like when beans, when we get close to the groomer, he starts to shake because he knows we're going to the groomer. So try to like take a different way. So I, my body doesn't realize where I'm self kidnapping to take myself to the place that I don't want to go to. I really have to get better at it because I have a lot of hip and back problems and they're only getting worse as I get older. And I don't, I think part of my resentment of exercise is, is like being upset with one, the aging process and two, the doom of a being a corporeal being. Like just the, okay. you know what I mean? Just like the, the like bummer that it is to have to like feel feelings and your body and need to eat and need to do all these like things to keep this whole operation going. Um, I really resent it. <laughs> so I don't know. Like, I just feel you deeply. Um, and I think like switching it up could be good. And even like making making it something with friends, like me and another friend have started just like taking a walk every weekend together. That's how we catch up. And like, that's, that's exercise. I'm wheezing on those walks, let me tell you. But it's like, you know, we're, we're doing it. We're moving while we're not just sitting and getting dinner, you know? Yeah, I think that's a great, like, yeah, if there's like, you know, and if the cost of the trainer, like making it down to like once a week, but then twice a week you work out with a friend, because right. there, there is that accountability. Yeah. Um, I do think like adding another person into it can be really helpful. You know, it is also good for accountability that I think people hate it, but posting to Instagram, like I, it would really help me be like, no, you have to go to the gym today. So, cause then you're going to post a picture that you went to the gym. Yeah, I'm not going to give that advice here. I think it's good because then it, it makes but you be like. But that's not going to help. The, it's motivation. Yeah, but they're working out. Their issue isn't that they're not working out at all. It's that they are, but they hate it so very I know much. what I'm saying. A way to not hate it is to post about it and get like encouragement from people. Yeah, but not everybody gets the same level of engagement that, as you. No, but I'm but what just if saying, you post that photo and nobody likes it? It doesn't matter. You, you're you're showing consistency. Like then you get to look and see, wow, I posted a few days in a row. You know what Francesca Ramsey taught me? She makes a thing and uh, like a calendar and then she marks off what she did every day. And once she's like in a groove of having done something for a few, uh, so, so many days in a row, she's like, well, I can't miss a day. Yeah. But I don't know if that helps your internal reaction to the thing. It gives you dopamine. Look, sometimes we give the same advice. Sometimes we give different (laughs) advice. And that's the joy of the show. It's a visual (laughs) way to see how much you've done. No, yeah, I I understand that more than than I would encourage the Instagram posting. But yeah, I mean, I think I think really working on like (laughs) other ways to have exercise, other ways to connect with your body throughout the week, incorporating friends, and then also working on that anticipation anxiety might help a lot. Yeah. And also like, Ways to make showering fun. Like, are there like fun smelling things that you can do? Lewis is laughing at me, but play you know, or playing podcasts that you like. like. Yeah, I listen to podcasts in the shower or like something to make that the shower itself also more enjoyable. I also so completely not- understand hating the shower because I don't like being I don't like I get it. I don't like being cold when you get out of the shower. Sometimes I don't like the feel of a towel. I have a lot going on. Well, hopefully some of that was helpful. Get, get a big towel. Go go and get something called, get a, what is it called? Get like a beach towel, but for the bathroom, it's a life changer. 
We hope that was helpful. If you want to submit your international question, you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Robert Hartwell. So stay tuned. Just Between Us. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, most controversial segment known to all of podcasting, Tough Questions. This week on the show, we have Robert Hartwell, CEO of Strength on Stages, where he coaches entrepreneurs, founders, and venture capitalists on the art of authentic storytelling and selling from the stage. Robert became well-known as a Broadway performer from iconic shows including Hello, Dolly! with Bette Midler, Dreamgirls, Memphis, Motown, and more. He went on to create the multi-million dollar arts education company, The Broadway Collective. Hello, Robert. Hello. Thank y'all so much for having me. Oh, my God. Oh my I gosh. just had to get in the, the Bette Midler of it all. <laughs> I had to get in all the different shows that you've worked on. Wow. Okay, so we are just talking. You're in New York. Yes, I'm uptown in Inwood. Literally one more stop. And most people say you're in Canada, but I <laughs> like don't come for me. <laughs> so are you did you move to New York from somewhere else to like start doing Broadway acting? Yeah. So I went to the University of Michigan, go blue for college and graduated and then moved right to New York and started auditioning for Broadway shows. So I really came here solely for Broadway. Wow. Okay. I'm very excited because I think you are our first Broadway guest. And I grew up in Westchester, New York, and we went to Broadway all the time growing up. It was like one of the best privileges of like living so close to the city. It was such a huge part of like my childhood, my adulthood. And what drew you to Broadway above everything else, even though it's kind of obvious because it's Broadway? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's what drew me. Honestly, it was a feeling, right? Like it, it was truly like a feeling. I was sitting in a theater when I was seven years old. It was the first show that I ever saw. And I just felt transported. I felt like I was at home. I felt all of the tinglies, like, I was like, oh my gosh, like, this feels like, give me more of this, you know? Um, What show was it? It was a little show called Ice Wolf. And my friends and I have been saying for many years, we're like, we need to go find the script and do a dramatic reading, like, with wine and cheese and, like, all of the things and, like, do a dramatic reading of this play that, like, changed my life at seven years old. Because, you know, when you're seven and you really believe that something is, like, fantastic, you're, like, yeah. riveting work. And then you go back and you're, like, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> oh, my God. I remember there was this scene in a movie where my parents were very conservative and when I was allowed to watch. So I, I didn't watch a lot of, like, rated our stuff or anything, you know, and I was like at a friend's house and there was like this scene on TV. And I remember being so disturbed by it and thinking it was so inappropriate and like raunchy or like sexual. And like, I was like shocked that it was on in my friend's home. And then I feel like years later I saw it and it was just a guy being like, I like you. And the girl being like, I don't like you back. Like it was so tame. Like, I don't know what I was thinking. I love this. Oh my God. We need to unpack this after the show. Oh my gosh. Oh my God. Was Ice Wolf a musical? 
Oh no, Ice Wolf was not a musical, but I feel like I heard music, although there was none. Ice Wolf was a play, and it's a lot of adults in costumes that are dressed up as wolves. And so, yeah, and so it's like all of these like woodland creatures running around. And I just thought it was so awesome because I loved being a creative kid. Like arts and crafts was my favorite. And to be able to see they had all of these like paper mache masks on and all of the eyes on the mask were like rhinestones and marbles and just it. it, And so colorful. I'm like, I want to wear that. I want to create that. I I just want to be a part of that. But no, no music, just... But that experience of of live theater, of like taking it in with both the performers and the audiences, like it's different even than the movies. Like you're a part of this specific moment in time with them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I saw Beauty and the Beast when I was younger on Broadway and there was like a, a malfunction where one of the champagne bottles didn't explode. And the guy playing Lumiere was like, uh, we'll be right back and like did this improvised thing. And I was I was like, I thought that was the coolest. The fact that he could like think on his feet like that and like that he could just like that. And I was like, I'm the only one who's seen this. Like no other person seeing Beauty and the Beast is going to see this malfunction. Like I'm the only one. I wrote about it in my journal. Like I was like so thrilled to be witnessing something that like was so live and like was so impressed with whoever that man is who played Lumiere. Now I got to know, did you ever have any incidents on stage where things went awry and you had to like recover in the moment? You know, that is like the beauty of live theater. Like people would always ask me, is it so weird doing the same thing every day? Right. Like most people go to their jobs and you're interacting with different clients or you have different projects that you're working on. But when you're a Broadway performer, your job is consistency. Your job is to do this one, two and a half hour musical eight times a week and do it exactly the same, but with energy and authenticity and love and joy and glitter and gaiety, right? Mm -hmm. So my favorite like thing actually was just trying to find ways to stay connected to other people on the stage. I would say I never had anything like, well, I mean, there were many moments where like sets would not come on because, you know, they're all automated or sometimes you'd be in a really serious scene. And because we're in the middle of Midtown Manhattan where, you know, there are like so many Broadway houses all on the same frequency. We were right next to my first Broadway show. We were right next to Phantom of the Opera. And so sometimes you'd be singing and then you'd hear like the Phantom be like, sing for me. And you're like, no, no. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) No, or, or they're free. Like, because the frequencies of mics and how close we are, sometimes you could get someone else's feed literally to come through, you know? Oh, So it was just, just things like that. I think also the scariest malfunctions would really be at the end of the week when your body is just so tired. And for me as a male identifying person, I was a lot of times like lifting, you know, female identifying people above my head. And so that was really scary sometimes by the end of the week when your muscles are like, I need a day off. 
Yeah. How do you keep it fresh, like between each, you know, like if, when you're doing the scene for the seventh time that week, like what are you thinking or how are you and the other actor sort of like keeping it exciting? Yeah, I think it's about filling your life outside of the theater. You know, a lot of people that are Broadway actors, I think, live for Broadway. And I think that's really scary because at some point the show is going to close. And so I would just always try and fill my day with as much life that had nothing to do with my show. So if I went to the museum or if I went on a really shitty date, like I would bring that like humor into the show that night, you know, or that story into the dressing room with the other actors and we'd all laugh about it and then like bring that into the show. So I'm so curious about like the inner workings of the Broadway community, of auditioning, of like the, I don't know, like the industry, because like we, you know, we're we're in like the entertainment industry out in LA and there's so much like of like, oh, well, if you go up for this or that, like, what was that like? And was it, did it feel like such a small world where everyone knew everybody or where there are all these people constantly coming in from other states to like try to get their first big role? That is an amazing question. I would say the Broadway community is smaller than small. And I think going before I was a part of the community, I just thought, oh my God, there are going to be thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people trying out for these roles. And yes, there are tons of people trying out, but during my 10 years of performing on Broadway, I think out of the six shows that I did, every single show that I did had crossover from another show. So one cast, our show would close and five to 10 of us would go to the next one that was opening the next season. And so it was just a very tight-knit community. And I mean, all of the Broadway performers don't like go out and have breakfast together before our two shows. But I mean, it really is, I think, like about 10 blocks, really. You know, there are only but so many delis in the theater (laughs) district. So you start to run into the people around your theater that are grabbing coffee or grabbing a bagel, you know, before or in between shows. And you also see each other all of the time at auditions. You inevitably, like, date the same people. (laughs) It's just a very small group, which is also really exciting. My favorite part was always watching people rise in the community like someone beginning in the ensemble and having like a deep, like, you know, aspiring to be a lead. And then maybe in two seasons, they're understudying the lead. And then a few years later, they're nominated for a Tony Award. Like that is the most exciting thing to me about the community is, is watching people grow, you know, but also like kind of like what I'm experiencing in my life as well growing out of it as well, Mm -hmm. you know, and just like opening yourself up to what a beautiful chapter, like how incredible that was and all of the people I got to meet and the stories I got to tell. And also life feels like it's ready for something new. Mm -hmm. I was wondering like how long are most people's tenure on Broadway? Like I imagine for a lot of people, they have to have a second career afterwards. A lot of people... I mean, it really goes all over the place. I think some people move to New York and within a year of auditioning, they're like, this is madness. 
and this doesn't feel good to my nervous system. Um, and I'm spending more time like talking myself off of the ledge than like actually being in auditions and getting the results that I desire. But when people are in the community, at least for people that I think identify more so as dancers first, it really comes down to how long do you want to run the race and how long is your body able to run the race with you? You know, because mm-hmm. desire and actual physical limitations are two completely different things. And I remember, I think I was like 26, 26 or 27, and I had hurt my hip in one of my Broadway shows. And I remember going to the surgeon and I'm thinking, he's like, your hip is like arthritic. He's like, you literally, he's like, you have the left hip of like a 60 year old. I'm like, what? And it's just because of like the wear and the tear that you do on your body every single day, doing the same thing over and over and over. And so you know, it really goes all over the place. But I think it really comes down to how long do you want to stay in the game? Because it is it's it's quite a race. When you got to New York, did you know what to do in terms of getting into audition? Because you're saying it's so small and insular, like you just show up in New York and like, how do you start? You just start going to auditions. Like, how do you even get to the place where you're even in front of the right people? I felt really blessed that my school was really focused around the New York experience. So even as a freshman, all the way through senior year at Michigan, we constantly had casting professionals and directors and choreographers and agents and managers coming to visit us. And so although you were learning, you were also cognizant that you were entering a business and learning these business skills throughout your four years, that when I got to New York, I was not at all confused that someone was going to cut me because I didn't fit the costume, you know? Mm -hmm. So I felt really prepared in that way. And I will definitely say that while I was working with students at Broadway Collective, that was the hardest thing is starting to see students that choose schools that I don't think do the best job of preparing individuals for a career in the business of Broadway. Because the business of Broadway, I think, and the ideation and, and like creativity and dream of Broadway, I think they are two different, (laughs) two different worlds. (laughs) Very relatable to us as well. Michigan is is where Star Kid is from, right? It's yeah. it launched like Darren Chris and all these kinds. Like that school knows what it's doing in terms yeah. of like getting people into show business and getting people into theater. Totally. I was like, when you said Michigan, I was like, absolutely. Yeah, Darren and I went to school at the same time. He actually Weird. his apartment was right next to my apartment in college, and so we have. A lot of funny stories of being together in college. He's a beautiful, beautiful soul. And I something that's always been so interesting to me about Broadway is that like you can be at the height of your Broadway career. Like you can be the lead in like all of these hit musicals and the rest of America doesn't really know who you are. <laughs> 
So what was that like for people? Like was I, in some ways, I imagine it's kind of nice because like you can go out and have a regular life and still be sort of treated like royalty in your community. But I also wonder if it is like this weird. You You're know, in a different reality. Yeah. I think, you know, you don't realize how special it is to be able to do your craft and do what you love at the height at which you're doing it with also anonymity, right? That you really can walk down the street. And I started to see some of my friends who were transitioning from Broadway lives to Hollywood lives, and they were starting to get series regulars or feature films and their entire lives would change. And I would see it not change them in particular, but really just like there's a fear that comes, I think, with that, with exposure, you know? And Mm -hmm. it's interesting when my, I had a Instagram post a few years ago that went viral and I was so uncomfortable with that many eyes on me because although I had spent 10 years on a Broadway stage and like had thousands of people look at me every single day, I could leave my dressing room and stage door at the end of the night and just like (laughs) do, 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 you know? (laughs) Um, But having people know your name and in some way then believe that you owe them something or want something from you because of that very uncomfortable and a huge adjustment. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break for ads, but then we'll be right back with our guest. And we're back. I think it's so wild that a lot of these performers don't get the love they deserve until they are on television. Like, the fact that like Cheryl Lee Ralph is like on Abbott Elementary and that is how people know her when she is literally an original dream girl or like, you know, the ways that like these people are like when people are like, oh, Sutton Foster from Younger. And I'm like, from Younger? Like, you know, it's like really, really wild. These people that are like so famous and that are so um, like iconic in this particular world. And then they'll get what was there was like one really funny thing at the Tonys one year where it was all these actors who were like very famous on Broadway, like could literally get any role they want on Broadway. And it was them talking about their sitcoms that had been canceled that year. And it was like all this, I forget the woman's name, but it was like all these people being like, tried to have a sitcom and it failed. (laughs) It's like so ubiquitous. But then I'm like, I wonder if it's like these icons who are just like not getting the love that they deserve, you know? Like, I think, you know what it is too, is like, I'm not even a huge Broadway person, but I think a lot of the reasons I know these people is just from being gay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, We've got to listen. We have so much to unpack after this. We have so much to unpack. But I do think also a lot of Broadway talent, especially people like, for instance, Sudden, and you think of like someone like Kelly O'Hara who does TV and does film, um, I think they really do love that they can go down the street in a city that isn't New York and no one bothers them. True. You think you know. that, that that's like more they want maybe the the money from TV, but not necessarily it's not their first love. Yeah. Yeah. 
I that leads me into my nosy question, which is the money of Broadway. Mm. And like, you know, it is very expensive to live in New York. And so like, do they pay a, a living wage like for all cast members or is it like a struggle um, even if you are performing on a Broadway stage every night? That's an amazing question. So when you are in a Broadway show, you are part of Actors Equity Association and the contract for a ensemble member, you're still making a little over $100,000 a year. So you are absolutely wow, making a livable nice. wage in New York City. However, what nobody really talks about is one, taxes that slash a half of that. So you're now at 50K. Um, and then above that, you have your 10% of your agent. You have, I think, 3% that goes to the union. And if you have a manager, another 5% that goes to your manager. And if you are a person in a faith-based community that tithes, you know, a portion of your income, like, you're just like, whoa, where did my money go? Okay, because I'm feeling real crunchy at the, like, why am I living paycheck to paycheck on Broadway? Um, yeah, help me understand that. So yes, on paper, you are making um, a livable wage. However, it is difficult, I think, um, to be in a place of wanting to buy property or wanting to invest and, you know, or wanting to build a family. It, it's, it goes, that money goes real, real quick in Nueva. <laughs> <laughs> and is it sort of a thing where once you break out of the ensemble once you get a more lead role then you can expect to keep getting those types of roles or do people often end up then going back to the ensemble for their next um, show I think it is you never know what is going to happen and I think what you end up doing is going where the work is right mm -hmm. because once you get that Broadway, you get a paycheck every single Thursday, right? It is really hard when you get to a place in your career when you are working consistently on Broadway and you say, okay, I've been in the ensemble. I only want to take lead roles moving forward. Well, that pool gets even smaller, you know, because now you are competing with Tony Award winners and Tony Award nominees, you know, not that you probably don't have the talent to go toe to toe with them, but it comes down to like, how long are you willing to, to bet and wait, mm -hmm. you know? And so a lot of people that look at taking that leap from being in the ensemble to a lead, maybe they understudy something on Broadway and then they get to play the role for a few weeks. And then the next Broadway show calls and says, hey, we'd love for you to be in the ensemble. Sometimes their agent will say, hey, don't do it. And then they'll go do regional work, you know, mm -hmm. or they'll go do a tour. And the money changes then, you know, and it also takes you outside of New York. So if you do need to be in, in, in an audition in person, you're not as able to get there, you know? However, a lot has changed with the pandemic now that so many auditions are virtual and you're able to, you know, just be with people as long as you have Wi-Fi. Um, <laughs> but you see people's journey and you just like wish them that what you're holding out for, I really pray you get it. <laughs> 
you know, because right. it, it's a big risk to turn down shows. How do you feel about famous actors coming and taking main parts? Ah, that's such a good <laughs> question. Controversy corner, baby. Yes. Gotcha journalism. <laughs> I feel like I want that person to have an appreciation for the culture of Broadway, have an appreciation for the history. I think it really comes down to the energetics of how that person treats the cast. And also, fiscally, I know what can happen when a big star is at the helm of your production. You just... You make more money? Well, you don't make more money, but in essence, you're guaranteed. Like when I was in Hello, Dolly! with Bed Midler, I knew we had a year advance from the first day of the tickets being open, you know? And so that is a beautiful feeling to be able to go into a theater and say, hey... As long as she is here, we're good, you know, um, which is amazing. I think like anything in life, it's just totally a give. It's a give and a take. You know, there is a certain draw that can happen from also a population that would probably never come to Broadway when stars like that come in. And for that, I freaking love it. You know, the more black and brown and other communities that we can bring into Broadway shows because someone from outside of our quote unquote community is coming in. I'm like, bring it on, you know? Mm. There's so much lead up to a new show opening. What goes into deciding like how quickly it can get shut down? I mean, have you ever been kind of like, like had the rug pulled out from under you with the production being closed really quickly? Or do you sort of always see that it's coming? Mm, that's beautiful. I feel really blessed that I've never been in a show that closed on me before I had another show wow. lined up. And so for me, it was pretty much 10 years straight of consistent work, which is very rare. And I don't take it lightly. I, I feel so grateful that I never had a moment where I was confused of where my next job was but it's some it's always so strange to see it like they put so much money into something so big and then it just is like never mind and they should yeah, like six down. weeks later it's like nope no everyone hated this goodbye <laughs> yeah totally, totally it's i think a huge gamble of an investment you know since a lot of shows are now really i think working to make their investors and their producers much more diverse before, much more diverse now than it was pre-June 2020. And when I look at a lot of these decks, it is a, it's a really hard sell of a hard sell of an investment to go in on a Broadway show, on a new Broadway show. However, you have those moments where there's a little thing called like the Hamilton mixtape, which like turns out to be Hamilton and like turns out to be this entire industry of itself, you know? So you just never know. You just never know. But it is very sad to see it when it happens because you know that everyone is doing their best. Like everyone's yeah. doing their best. And sometimes 
it just doesn't work. Yeah. My parents um, have been minor investors in a few shows because they love Broadway so much. And every single show has failed. (laughs) Every single thing they've invested in has closed rather quickly. Really? Except I think Penn and Teller. I think they invested on Penn and Teller on Broadway and that one made like $100 or something. Oh my God. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so that's the thing. It's like brand new show, like original show, like Hamilton or something, or In the Heights, all Lin-Manuel or, or, you know, um, uh, but then also there's ones that are like based on films like Waitress, I was like, or Mean Girls. But then I see the safe bet sort of always being the revival of something. Or like, you know, people are always going to want to see Rent, no matter who's in it. People are always going to want to see, you know, Cabaret or they're always going to want to see. I'm I'm just Oklahoma. I'm naming like old ones, but you know what I mean? Like they're always going to want to see the ones that they already know and like. Yeah. No matter who's the star of it. Well, it's the same kind of issue in Hollywood where like it's like, oh, we need existing IP or we need something that that this is based off of that people are already familiar with instead of just a brand new idea. Which is why I want to make my Blink-182-sical called <gasps> What's My Age Again? It's a rock musical using the songs from Enema of the State by Blink-182. And I have the whole storyline written out if someone would like to invest in it. Yes. Oh it's my called gosh. What's My Age Again? The Blink-182-sical. Yeah, if that's I'm the there- only reason we're friends is because Gabby told me about this when we first met and I was like, I'm in. Yeah. Listen. Ten years later, we still haven't made this musical. I don't know how to make a musical, but I have I have an outline if anyone's interested in the story. All the songs work in order. Oh my God. <laughs> the investment link is gonna be in the show notes or yeah. slide into the DMs. <laughs> I'm so curious for you, like at what point did you realize, okay, I think I'm ready to move on from Broadway? What was that like? It was the pandemic. It was oh. It was, yeah, it was actually, you know what? It was probably a few years before the pandemic because I was performing and I am a pretty independent person. I like to just kind of move through life when I want to move through life. And I kind of hit this moment where eight shows a week was just really hard for me. Like I wasn't able to date. I wasn't able to... Well, I guess I would say date in the way that I wanted to date. Like I wanted to, on a Friday night, have dinner, (laughs) you know, or like take a weekend trip upstate. And you're not able to do that when you need to be on stage eight times a week. And so I was like, all right, what else like really, really brings me joy? And it's always been teaching and entrepreneurship. And so I built the Broadway Collective, and that was an incredible six years of my life. However, during the pandemic, I started to feel, oh, wow, it's been a few years since I've been on stage. I'm not able to really connect with the people that I've always loved connecting with. And I just got really restless. And when I get restless, I just get really curious And so I'm like, what have people always wanted from me or asked me about? And a lot of it comes down to marketing and storytelling, you know? And I had never built a company to help adult entrepreneurs, you know? Some of my friends always laugh. They're like, why do you say adult entrepreneurs? I'm like, (laughs) well, because I built a business for six years where, you know, my 
clients were 12 to 18 year olds, you know? So I feel like I just always, I keep prefacing like, I work with adults now. Um, (laughs) And so it was just, you know, you know that nudge, you know, when you're just like, I am feeling ready for a new adventure. And that's kind of where I was, you know? And it was wild because my company was really growing and doing really well. So it didn't on paper make 100% sense to just say, all right, let's figure out a transition plan. But sometimes I think it's okay to, to go with what you want versus what makes 110% sense. Yeah, I think like when you talked about the business of Broadway or thinking of yourself as a business, that's something that like, you know, I didn't realize coming into Hollywood that like, oh, you have to actually know how to market yourself, how to tell your story, how to succinctly be like, this is who I am. Every meeting starts with like, tell us about yourself. Um, And so like it is hard. It is hard when you just want to be a creative to know that you also have to have skills in this other, this totally other aspect, you know? And I'm sure even like people, like I keep thinking, you know, like if you're on Broadway, you're in the ensemble, you you still want to be like, maybe I need to be making vlogs about what it's like to be on the ensemble. Maybe I need to be making TikToks, showing dance moves. Like, you know, there's all kinds of like marketing stuff that you like still have to be doing and even as a, a creative person, which is, Exhausting. Equal parts, yeah. It's like interesting and also exhausting. I totally feel that. And you even feel it now. It's so interesting because during the pandemic, I got really, actually, I think it was really after that. I've always loved talking to people on social media. And then after that viral post, I was like, oh my gosh, I this is way too much stimulation for me. And so I took like a break from it, you know, but now kind of coming back, I'm like, oh my goodness, so much has changed. You know, you have to do a reel and then you have to do a live <laughs> and you have to do a this. And if you're what not on your, TikTok, you're- What was your viral post? I purchased a home um, and it went viral in June of 2020. Yeah, about- buying a home that's 200 years old when slavery was still widely legal in the U.S. And so that was, that's what led to my TV show. And that's what just led to a lot of things changing in my life. Wow. Yeah. It's so wild how like, we're like, oh, I'll just throw this up. And it's like, this could change everything. (laughs) Or four people could see it and not care. Yeah, (laughs) totally. You are so right. And I mean... I mean, at that time in my life, I think I had two or 3,000 followers and I loved them. And I would like show them what sweater was making me happy that day. Or like, (laughs) I I just, I loved talking to them. Um, So I definitely wasn't putting it up for, you know, hundreds of thousands of people to notice. You know, that was definitely not the intention. I was just really happy that day to share the news. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that is that is super interesting, though. I can see why it went viral. It was kind of just this like moment, I think, in June of 2020, where there was so much devastation. And this was 
I think, a glimmer of hope that many of us, especially Black men, needed at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm very grateful. Well, now I'd love for you to play a very silly game show. <laughs> I am so ready. <laughs> we've we've gone through every emotion available, yeah. and now it's time for games. Now show. it's time for games. <laughs> so this game is called hypotheticals. You and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have, and then you tell me what you would do in that situation, and um, I get feedback. Okay. So our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? Your partner of 51 years oh my God. admits that 10 years into your marriage, they had a three-day-long affair with their boss in order to lock in a promotion, only for their boss to get fired before they even got the promotion. Would you stay with this cheater? Why are they telling me this? <laughs> They think they think that they you know they they finally want to get off their chest, and so they didn't get the promotion. They didn't get no, any cause money. That, no, because that boss got fired. I really oh, thought when you no. said that boss got, I thought you were going to say that boss got pregnant. Robert, thoughts, feelings, <laughs> questions, emotions. You know, I am feeling, I am feeling like I would actually stay. Mm. <laughs> I would stay because here's the thing. You're coming to me now, but I, oh God, this is hard. 51 years. That's the other thing. So we're We're, like 80. Yeah, we're so old. I'm like, I'm not going to be able to like, you know, gussy up and get myself back out on the scene. So I'm just like, you know what? We're stuck now, but I'm definitely going to like take their dentures out and like hide them. Ooh, yes. Small petty revenge. Yeah. Absolutely. I feel like I would I would demand like princess treatment for six months. What happened to the boss? They it turned out they were terrible at their job. And where so are they now? They uh they actually ended up working on a cruise ship. And, and then they still... dis- no, they disappeared oh! off the cruise ship. Oh, People they always, always disappear when they go cruises. on the cruise ship. Absolutely. Yeah. You couldn't pay me. Yeah. yeah. All right. So that's kind of interesting. All right, I'd stay. Mostly because that's kind of an interesting story. <laughs> I would just be like, oh my God, if you're going to cheat on me, make sure it pays off. That's what I was going to say. I'm mostly Correct. disappointed you didn't get a raise. I yeah. know. I wanted the money for us. Like I wanted the <laughs> comfort and the ease. You know what I mean? I also yeah. feel bad. Like I'd be like, what What about me made you think that I as a partner could not, you couldn't trust me with this information or tell me this? I would be like, what about me at that time made you feel like you couldn't cut me in on this job? What? Yeah, like why? <laughs> I thought I- you were going to say, what about me made you think you had to have an affair with your boss to get us more money? Not why couldn't you no. tell me about your scheme? Yeah, why aren't I in on the scheme? Are we not teammates? Are we not partners? Okay. I mean, well, you're coming again, again from a polyamorous point of view, <laughs> which makes this game more difficult to play with you. <laughs> but it is cheating. That's what I'm saying. It's cheating because they didn't fill me in. I if know. they had filled me in, we would have been fine. Right. But I'm saying not everyone would be fine with their spouse having a yeah, three day yeah. long affair with their boss to get a promotion. You yeah, just yeah. happen you to be. This was 10 years ago. No, it was. It was 51. 40 years ago. Oh, 40. 40 years ago. 40 years what ago. are you going to do? Yeah. yeah. All right, so we'll all stay. We're all staying. We're all staying. 
<laughs> I'm immediately a suspect in the cruise ship disappearance yeah. of this boss. Totally. <laughs> Give me... I, I need evidence. Yeah. That that Gabby didn't do it. Um, okay. You're not going to find any because I did do it. <laughs> okay. Our next one. Are you a terrible parent? Your daughter, 27, is getting married and invites you to go wedding dress shopping with her. She tries on one dress that looks truly awful. But she starts to cry and says she finally feels like a bride when she's wearing it. When she asks if you like it, you say, I love that you love it. Are you a terrible parent? (laughs) You are garbage. You are a garbage (laughs) parent. You are trash. You should have the birth certificates literally snatched from your hands. Absolutely. You are a terrible parent. She just admitted that she felt like a bride for the first time in her life. Yeah. Garbage. Trash parent. I need to hear. So you would lie and say that you liked the dress? I would say this makes me so happy. Yeah. Oh, a different type of of avoidance. (laughs) Omission. (laughs) Omission. (laughs) I feel like that person's a terrible parent. Yeah. Well, I'll have to say that and this and I'm sorry, dad, for sharing this. But the day of my bat mitzvah, I went (laughs) to get my hair done and I got my hair done like in this weird half updo at the local salon. And I asked my dad what he thought if he liked it. And he said, it doesn't matter what I think. Oh, no. And then I cried from that moment up until the bat mitzvah happened. And for the last 20 years, my dad's not allowed to talk about people's hair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's been yeah. yeah. That's, that's that's why Robert had such a strong reaction yeah. that it is in fact trash. It, it is. Allison comes up with these out of her own brain. They're so good. I love how rooted in childhood trauma they are. You know? <laughs> it's like cathartic and cleansing and just just the right amount of truth and absurdity. I'm obsessed. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome to play anytime. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> and I love that your parents listen. This is so good. I mine love it. Mine do. Yeah, mine do. My mom listens. My dad listens occasionally. Yeah, that's why I've started being like, I'm sorry, but you did. Yeah. <laughs> At me, okay? Oh my gosh. Okay, our final game. Would you forgive this liar? You have been going to the same hairstylist for years. And every time you go into the salon, they shout, my favorite customer is back. This makes you feel very special. After one appointment, you end up using the bathroom after paying. Uh And when you come out, you see your hairstylist greet their next customer (gasps) by shouting, it's my actual favorite customer. (laughs) (laughs) Would you forgive this liar? (laughs) I... I I can't go first. I can't go first. I just I can't because go first. I was with you until they said actual, and then I was like, "Wow, that hurts so deep." Wow. I thought you were gonna say that she didn't know my name. Oh, oh no. Oh my god, my actual favorite customer. So implying to that person that everyone else they say it to lies is lot. Li- they're lying to them. And that that customer knows that that person is lying. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's, it's some 
very hurtful. It's so hurtful. Oh, this is Stabby McStabbersons. Like, this (laughs) is rough. I could never go back. No, I'd never go back. I would have to find a new place I would never go back. I would never go back. I think I'd try to see if, like, the Uber driver could even, like, pick me up from the bathroom. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, I'm like, I don't even, I don't want to be seen leaving you know, like I'm a puddle of tears. I'm embarrassed. I'm feeling, I'm feeling everything. Yeah. I, I would come out of the bathroom, storm out, look at some, another stylist and go, goodbye, my actual favorite hair cutter. And then storm out. Yes. I would, no, I would sneak out and never, ever come back and then forever be, avoid that whole area. Where I, would, the I would storm out like a wronged Southern housewife and be like, what does she have that I don't have, Richard? <laughs> I love that it has to be Richard. Yeah. I love it. Why not? Oh my God. Feels oh, right. Yeah, that, I care way too much about um people in my life who don't care that much about me. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah, I'm getting that. I'm getting that vibe. Yeah. It's really coming through. It's coming through strong. I'm getting a strong reading here, actually. Oh, Oh. my God. My actual favorite guest, Robert Hartwell. Dead. Dead. Oh, my God. Well, thank you so much for for joining us on this roller coaster. Where can people follow you and all the things you're up to? Well, my actual Instagram is <laughs> Robert takes pics and you can follow me there. And anyone that wants to talk about storytelling, they can also head over to strengthonstages.com. Amazing. Thank you so much. You've been a Thank delight. you all. I'm I will a- not cut you from the production. Oh my God, please don't. <laughs> Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about the Overton window. between us it's time for topics x x x x x x x baby 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 that was beautiful really nice thank you wow so i picked this week's topic because somebody replied to one of my tweets using this term and i thought i've never heard of that term and then i looked it up and it was fascinating and so i brought it to the show what tweet I think I was tweeting about uh, something about all the rampant anti-Semitism. Sure. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Gotta say. Because what I was, my point with that is like, I don't think that like people are suddenly more anti-Semitic no, than just, they were before. They, it, they're just seeing high power, high powered, important people being more openly anti-Semitic. Absolutely. And so then they feel like they can do it more comfortably because it's no longer socially unacceptable Correct. to be blatantly anti-Semitic. Right. And so my point was sort of like, instead of like trying to reason with these people or like let them change their mind, it's more about just making it so it's no longer socially acceptable to be anti-semitic or racist or homophobic or like i think it's like through the power of like making it like well like 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 cannibalism or like yeah it's like different why would you say that attack to be like trying to use reason and actually change their mind versus being like okay you're gonna say that well we're gonna ostracize you yeah (laughs) you know what i mean yeah 
So So what's the Overton window? The Overton window is the range of policies politically acceptable to the mainstream population Ah. at a given time. Okay. Example? So like segregation, right? At one point, segregation was legal, was legal and accepted by the population. And now the Overton window has changed. And if you were to say you supported segregation, people will be like, what? Yeah. You know, and I mm-hmm. think a big part of the problem of what's happening right now is our Overton window is shifting and shifting and shifting into more and more conservative and bigoted ideas. Yeah. OK. You know, what's interesting is I love people who the Overton window never affected them. Like I love like like people who at who back when the population would have been like, well, segregation is legal. I, I love the people who are like, no, it's it's bad. You know what I mean? Like, I love the people that have always never even engaged with the Overton window who just like have their own morals and stuff. I always find those people super fascinating. But um, yeah, I do agree that like the increase in it, there's there goes there's waves of anti-Semitism being, you know, accepted or unaccepted. And then it also has to do with, um, you know, okay. When, and I'm not saying everyone, but when there was a big push in terms of free Palestine, people were wrongheadedly coming at Jews who were not Zionists. In fact, Jews who believe in free Palestine and accusing of anything related to Judaism to be pro-Israel, even when the person was actively saying they are not, they are not pro-Israel and sort of mis, misnaming or becoming anti-Semitic in the process. That all of a sudden was like kind of fine to do. I'm and sorry, then, I'm confused. Are you talking about people, Jews who were saying as a no, Jew, you should support Israel no matter what? No, You're no. You're saying people who- People who were on the right, who were like, Rightfully saying free Palestine. Yeah. And then dipping into anti-Semitism, like dipping into coming, using it as a way to come at Jewish people on the Internet in an anti-Semitic manner. Right. That was for I saw that becoming completely fine on the Internet. Then this all happens with Kanye and everything. And all of a sudden, those same people who were posting that stuff, celebrities or influencers or whatever, start posting like. I support my Jewish friends and family like anti-Semitism isn't isn't okay. But back when that other thing was trendy, they were like, okay, promoting stuff that was like they didn't understand the full scope of the story. So they were accidentally, I think, promoting things that were anti-Semitic because they didn't. They weren't well versed. They just saw that this was what was hype at the time. And I'm not talking about actual activists. I'm not talking about people who know geopolitical situations. I'm not talking about activists. I'm not talking about people who are actually completely in the right. I'm talking about people who like just post what's trendy. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, okay, so it was trendy to like kind of be anti-Semitic towards Jews in the name of free Palestine, which you can be in for free Palestine without being anti-Semitic. And a, a large majority of people are. And then but the people that don't really understand the situation were like, let's be anti-Semitic. And then all of a sudden, those same people are like, Kanye shouldn't be saying these things. Like, how dare I support Jews? And it's like, it's just kind of like what's trendy. Like the Overton window moves based on like what, like if someone, if during this period of time, like being like everyone posting, like support your Jewish friends, someone started being like, and Jews and free Palestine and, and, and using free Palestine in the wrong way to be anti-Semitic, people would call them out. 
But back when it was happening, when that was the trend, they weren't. Does that make sense? Like, well, I actually like, think Free Palestine is a really interesting, like that actually really speaks to the Overton window because I would argue when we were growing up, like 20 years ago, absolutely. to say Free Palestine was so radical. Exactly. And like it was outside the norm of, the of Overton, what a lot of people sure. were saying. And now you've seen that it's actually, I think, at least in the progressive side of the Overton window, right? Because like it's it includes both yes. the more radical progressive thoughts and the more radical conservative thoughts. Right. I would say pre-Palestine has actually moved from being more radical to being more, you know, accepted and sensible yeah. and popular. Right. And so that's like, I think, a good example of the Overton window changing, because even though I am Jewish, like I believe in free Palestine right. and I think it's hard not to when you look at the realities of what's going on over there. But like to us as Jews 20 right. years ago, we that like it, w- it would have been like wild. Right. You know? right. right. <laughs> but I'm just saying, I think sometimes it becomes it goes with like trends without the people engaging in the trends, realizing how what the last trend was accounted, created room for anti-Semitism that is now becoming more like I think a lot of this stuff like because people aren't thinking it through like even like the idea like people saying like oh I'm just a conspiracy theorist I just believe in lizard people but like they don't realize that like lizard people is an anti-Semitic trope Mm -hmm. that like actually has to do with like if you follow the the line, you're like hollow earth, you know, who's in that earth? It's Jews controlling it. Like it always kind of know this. Oh, yeah. Most 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 conspiracy conspiracy theories theories are anti-Semitic. It goes back to Jews. So like, you know, people being like, oh, well, I'm just a conspiracy theorist. But like they don't realize that that a lot of this stuff because they're not looking into like how it all kind of spider webs together. And like that, like the anti-Semitism becoming more accepted is is like a little leak from here and a little leak from here. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. To all of a sudden Kanye's like and the Jews. Yeah, it's damn it. These quote unquote free thinkers, that's what they call themselves. And it's just they're just problematic. What other like things do you feel like have shifted either in or out of the Overton window in like the last few years? I feel like the the um, defunding the police has shifted Mm -hmm, where mm -hmm. it's become more. I don't think it's mainstream, but yeah, I don't think, I, but I think like on the scale, I think it's like move from all the way over here, like mm-hmm. a little closer. Yeah. But I also think things like putting immigrant children in cages right. um, has entered the Overton window on the conservative side. Whereas like, I feel like if we told people 20 years ago that we were going to do that, uh, they'd be like, don't do that. <laughs> but they <laughs> did it. What I mean? They did it with the Japanese internment camps. That's yeah, true. They did it. It just, it kind of, I think it's the hate is always there. Yeah. It's just who's going to be the most hated yeah. this week. Right. Exactly. And for what reason. Yeah. Right. And who supports that hate. Mm-hmm. Right. This is different. It's hard. I didn't really look at exactly what Kanye was saying. Ugh. It's always hard for me when two different minority groups go against each other. Because I, and it happens way more than it should. Mm-hmm. And I always feel like then the people like the white people at the top are like, yeah, get each other, you know, and it's like I. But he doesn't even he's anti-black, too. So it's not even. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, really, it it has been hard to see it getting more mainstream, but it actually also has been 
heartening to see how much people are like, uh, no to the anti-Semitism, actually. Uh, that That is the bridge too far that we've taken. That's like the bridge that we've taken uh, that's too far for Kanye. Although- just like, he said slavery was a choice. That should have been the end of it. That's what I'm saying. Well, I think <laughs> yeah. it, in a way it is problematic that the that the nail in the coffin was anti-Semitism. Exactly. Because, well, because a lot of Jews are white or, and, or white passing or have white privilege. And so it's like once we came for a population where the majority of them are white or white passing, suddenly, oh, now it's too far. Whereas like Melissa said, like all the shit that he said about black anti-blackness should yeah. have been, that should have canceled him yeah so in a way even though like it is going it's it's all it's multi-layered and fucked up. yep <laughs> overton window you know it's interesting because window the word window it comes with visibility yeah, right opening and closing inherently so you know in terms of like gay people right it was like gay people were getting more accepted than they like kind of shined a little spotlight on trans people and there's a, the the pros and cons right of like trans people sort of being left alone in terms of like mainstream problems and like visibility and acceptability and respectability and then all of a sudden trans people are visible and now people like politicians are like get them mm-hmm. you know and so there's like the it's like oh wow you you know you're in the conversation but like sometimes it's like i would like to not be in the conversation actually i'll just a little sneak out of the conversation like i feel like the jews were sneaking out of the conversation for a little bit like we were like no don't look at us and then all of a sudden it was like you i think the legalization of same sex marriage is something that rapidly moved like where yeah. like it was not i think i was doing research for my book and i think that in like 1996 like 23 or 27% of America supported it. Yeah. And by the time it was approved, it was like 60. Yeah. Um, which like is a, a you know, a, a big, big yeah. push. Like that's something that really like dramatically shifted um, quickly for a social movement. And I think there were a lot of people behind that. I think there were a lot of really big activists behind that. Mm-hmm. It's tough because... I think it scratches the surface of what the queer community needs. But I do think that it did a huge swing. And hopefully, you know, it's indicative of the huge swing that will happen for, you know, in terms of gender, too. But I think I would love to see a big flip. I would love to see in like 10 years, people be like so embarrassed that they were holding back trans health care from kids. Yeah. Like I would love to see people be so freaking embarrassed about that because I think they will be. Or like if somehow gun control. could. Oh could my shift. God. <sighs> right. Like Please. if somehow being like, oh yeah, everyone should have a gun suddenly becomes like not an okay thing to right, believe or right. say. That would be great. Fucking open carry. Like <laughs> if we unbelievable. Just AR-15s. If we can just end that. Like right. that would mm-hmm. be, that's just the first step. Yeah. Well, I'm ready for them to bring back cigarette smoking inside, guys. I don't know about you. <laughs> I was thinking about this the other day about how when a, when we were little kids, like that was normal. <laughs> people smoked. People in the car smoked. I drove around in car with people who smoked with the windows up in the car. That I was like fine. That. It yeah, wasn't so that's fine, a big but it was like even yeah. if we go to cars, like seatbelts. That's seatbelts. But right before we were born. But yeah, like, yeah, it was like. 
people did not want to have seatbelts in cars. No, they thought it was like infringing on their rights. Infringing on their rights. (laughs) Jesus Christ. So all these things when somebody presents a new idea and you're like, oh, that's wild. That Uh could never uh happen. The The American public will never accept that. It's like, well, we've accepted a lot of things that like at a time in history, it looked like we never would get there. So I think in a way it helps me remain hopeful that maybe eventually we'll get there. But also the Overton window can keep shifting conservatively. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we really have to fight against Mm -hmm. is like the normalization of these horrible policies that are so prejudiced and misguided and harmful Um, and and not (laughs) and not in a room of people. Being like when somebody presents an idea, being like, oh, yeah, that's fine. Being like, what are you saying? (laughs) My favorite favorite thing is to just go, why would you say that? (laughs) Or just being taking the time to be like, actually, like, that's not true. (laughs) Or like that's the logic that you're basing this argument off of isn't accurate or, you know, like, but it's hard. Because, again, I don't think that that will make it so that they will change their mind but it will maybe make it so it's like not as openly and easily discussed and therefore accepted or and- plant something in their head that they might think about later. Mm-hmm. Also look deeper into the things that you're saying, because at the end of that rainbow is largely anti-Semitism. <laughs> <laughs> what do we rate this episode? I rate it 11 out of 10, 51 lovely years together. Oh, well, maybe more like 48. Yeah. Oh, no, actually, it was only three days. 41 (laughs) lovely years together. I will rate it 32 out of 24 uh, Pilates. Pilates makes me think of the OC all the time. Like, just it makes me think of like rich women doing it. But I guess that's not really true. Well, you can do it at home. You don't even need a part. You're right. I'll rate it. 182 out of 20. Whoa. The Blink 182 musical. Yes! <laughs> What's my age again? Coming to stages near you. Thank you to Robert Hartwell for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Jog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa Diamond Monts. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Tracy Soren. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or on our channel, youtube.com slash show. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also at Allison Raskin, at She Is Not Melissa, at Gabby Road, Emotional Support Lady Substack, Patreon.com slash Gabby Dunn and also Allison's book, Overthinking About You. Go and leave a Goodreads or an Amazon review. Um, you can also go to Scribd and see my book, Stimulus Rack. But Allison's, give them reviews. Okay, bye. Forever. Yeah.